Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. We kick off Grey Cup week with our first Grey Cup legend, Russ Jackson, and part one of Grey Cup memories. St. Joseph's Healthcare Hamilton is raising money for a new CT suite. The Ontario government has a new right to disconnect law, but are you going to use it? Does using social media to share your cancer diagnosis help or hurt? And baseball has its first labor stoppage in more than two decades. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. They are the players who rose to the occasion and delivered on the biggest stage of Canadian football. This is Grey Cup Legends, brought to you by Industria Pizzeria and Bar on 900 CHML. And we are kicking it off in style. The legendary Russ Jackson is joining us on Good Morning Hamilton. Russ, good morning. Good morning, and it is a good morning. It is a good morning because it's Cats and Blue Bombers in the Grey Cup this Sunday, a rematch of the 2019 CFL Final. This has all the makings of a great game, do you think? It does. I think that they were the two teams that have been picked, I think, since about halfway through the season that people thought should be there, and they did the job and won their games not very easily, either of them, but they managed to win their games and going to face off in Hamilton next weekend. You had the pleasure of winning three Grey Cup championships during your playing career, 1960, 68, 69. What are some of the memories that come to mind when you think about those championship games? Well, I think uh, being a Canadian, especially back in those days, a Canadian football player, um, the idea of winning the Grey Cup was really important and and really important to individuals and to teams. And I think that uh, in 1960, when we won our first Grey Cup, and the first one is always special, um, we we did something we weren't supposed to do, and that was get to the Grey Cup and then go out west and beat the Edmonton Eskimos. But uh, I, I think winning that, that first Grey Cup is, is really something that back in our day, we're talking many years ago, <laughs> uh, was really important to the guys who were playing football at that time. Grey Cup week is underway this week. There are a lot of events planned uh, throughout the week, and you know there, there can be some distractions for the players here and there. What was Grey Cup week like when you played? Well, it was similar to this one. It was they had all the functions, the the, the big dinners, and uh, I, I think it was more organized than uh, by the league than it is now. It seems like the teams sort of take over and do their thing, and uh, it's like Calgary always has their breakfast somewhere out in the street and uh, things like that. And every team seems to have their own focal point. Whereas I thought back in our day, our day being way back in the 60s, uh, I, I think that the league controlled what took place more than they do now. We're chatting with Russ Jackson, the first of five Grey Cup legends that we will be uh, chatting with uh, this time this week. Um, you're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Statistically, 1969, your last season, was your best. You had career highs in completions, passing yards, touchdowns. Why did you hang up your helmet after your 12th season at the age of 33? Well, I had decided uh, when I was playing with Ottawa, and I finally did get the first-string job for quite a few years, I had told head coach Frank Clare that I would let him know before I was going to retire. I, he'd given me the break that I needed to play professional football, and I wanted to be fair to him because he never really worried about bringing in another quarterback 
very often over my last half a dozen years with Ottawa. And, and I just felt I owed it to him. And I was in education. I had moved up to be a vice principal in the high school system. I wanted to move along and become a principal. And, and I enjoyed it immensely. It was a job I enjoyed doing, working with teenage kids. And, and I just decided that my own kids were getting older. Um, they needed a little bit more of Dad. And uh, I just decided at the end of the 68 season, having won the Grey Cup against Calgary, that it was time to start thinking about hanging them up. And uh, my wife Lois and I talked it over, and I said, okay, one more year, I'll play 69. We had a good team coming back after winning in 68. And, and went into Frank's office uh, during the off season and told him it was going to be my last, my last year. And uh, he accepted that. He didn't try and talk me out of it. A lot of other people did. <laughs> but he didn't try and talk me out of it because he understood me probably as well as anybody did at that time. And uh, I just told him I was leaving. I know a lot of people thought I was just trying to get more money. That was <laughs> the ploy of trying to get a bigger contract. But I just wanted to get out. I, I did get out. I had no regrets. Um, winning or losing, winning was a great way of going out, especially back-to-back great cups. So it was one of those things that um, just came into view after winning in 68, and I just decided it was time to get on with life and get on with my real career. Our guest here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is the legendary Russ Jackson. The Russ Jackson football field is now on the Hamilton Mountain. How amazing of a tribute is this? It is. It, it's absolutely terrific. I know I choked up a little bit when I was trying to talk to them, uh, the people that were there at that opening a couple of weeks ago. And uh, it's something very special when your hometown recognizes you some way like that. You, you win a lot of awards, and they all mean something. But that's special to think there's a football field that's named after me, and the kids, the high school kids and the, the minor league kids are going to have a place to play up there for a lot of years. And it, it was a special thing for me and my whole family. A well-deserved honor, long overdue as well. Russ, you are a true Canadian football icon and just a, an icon in general, not even relating to football. You had an illustrious career as a teacher and a principal as well. Thanks for your time. Enjoy the game on Sunday as well. Okay, Rick, we'll be there. <laughs> Russ Jackson, Canadian Football Hall of Fame quarterback with the Ottawa Rough Riders, a four-time Most Outstanding Canadian, three-time CFL MOP. He won the Grey Cup three times, a Grey Cup MVP, a Lou Marsh Trophy winner, uh, also former color commentator on CHML's Tiger Cats broadcast back in the day, uh, a member of the Ontario Sports Hall of Fame, Office of the Order of Canada, Canada's Walk of Fame, uh, truly a legend in this country. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The Grey Cup, the pinnacle of professional football in Canada, has been presented to the top team on the gridiron since 1909. The iconic trophy, which cost a reported $48 to create, was donated by then-Governor-General Albert Gray to the Canadian Rugby Union to recognize the best amateur rugby football team in Canada. The Cup has been raised 107 times since its inception, but there were five years in which a championship was not celebrated. The First World War wiped out the title game from 1916 to 18. A rules dispute within the Canadian Rugby Union led to the cancellation of the Grey Cup in 1919, and 101 years later, the COVID-19 pandemic forced the cancellation of the CFL championship.
The inaugural Grey Cup final was held 112 years ago at Rosedale Field in Toronto, where the University of Toronto Varsity Blues beat the Toronto Parkdale Canoe Club 26-6 in front of about 3,800 spectators. The following year, the Grey Cup was played in Hamilton for the first time at the iconic AAA grounds, but 12,000 fans watched the hometown Hamilton Tigers fall to the defending champions from the U of T 16-7. Two years later, Hamilton was etched onto the Silver Cup when the Alerts topped the Toronto Argonauts 11-4 at the AAA grounds. The Hamilton Tigers were crowned champions in 1913 and 15, but it took a while for the team to get back to and host the title game, in which they won in 1929, 30, and 32, each time against the Regina Rough Riders. The Tigers made one more appearance in the big game, losing to the Winnipeg Pegs in 1935 and then suspended operations because many of the players fought in the Second World War. Tomorrow on Grey Cup Memories, another team from Hamilton reaches the top of the summit, the Tigers return to the field, and a new era in Hamilton football is born. And there we go, part one of five Grey Cup memories this week at this time. All week this week, 8, 10 a.m., we'll have our Grey Cup memories feature. And it was great looking back at some of the early years of Grey Cup lore because... Really, it was, you know, a, a bunch of teams all over the place playing uh, rugby-style uh, football rules, if you will. And uh, today's game, obviously, much, much more different than it was way back when. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Big and important time for St. Joseph's Healthcare Hamilton. It has launched a holiday drive as it's uh, raising money to... Uh, bring a CT suite into its emergency department. It, it has the CT scanner, but now it needs to build a suite to house this apparatus. And it's inviting everyone listening right now, and those who are not, so tell your friends uh, to contribute to the project because this is a vital component that the hospital really needs. The estimated cost, $1.44 million. Well, let's chat about this and, and why this is so important. Dr. Greg Rutledge is the Chief of Emergency Medicine at St. Joseph's Healthcare Hamilton and joins us now. Dr. Rutledge, good morning. How are you? Uh, good morning. I'm fine. How are you? I'm not too bad. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, how big of a need is this CT suite? Uh, this really would be a, a game changer for us at St. Joe's. We uh, it would be a, an additional CT scanner, so it wouldn't be remove, moving it from somewhere else in the hospital. It would be a value add a scanner, and so would really increase our ability to get answers quicker, and therefore move, uh, be able to flow patients through the hospital much quicker. Will this improve uh, wait times? Will it uh, you know uh, uh, really chop down the backlog of those who are waiting for surgeries as well? It will, yes. Yeah. So it'll have it'll have two impacts. One directly in emerge, um, as you mentioned, wait times, uh, ambulance offload times. So when ambulances arrive, getting them back into the street are, are big hot button items for us right now, and it would improve both those. And, and the reason it would would because two things can happen. One, we'll get the CT done quicker, which will get us a diagnosis that can get patients to surgery quicker if they have a surgical diagnosis like appendicitis, etc. It will also allow us to get the information to say, actually, there isn't anything sinister wrong with you today, and we'll be able to discharge you home. So the sooner we can get that decision, the sooner we can 
either transfer patients upstairs or get them home, which frees up beds to offload patients off of ambulance stretchers or to, you know, get that next patient through into a bed. So it really impacts all of us. Every one of us could at some point go through the eMERGE, and, and whether you need a CT scanner or not, um, that extra scanner directly in the, department, in the department will just improve everyone's experience. Yeah, obviously the ripple effect is massive. How, how yeah. long is the wait list right now for a CT scan? Uh, so right now, I should speak of the other part as well, but eMERGE specifically, our radiologists do a great job of reading the scan once it's done. So they usually, you know, if we look at our data, they'll read it within an hour of the scan being done. It can take four, sometimes five hours to get that scan done, though, and so the overall time for a CT scan can approach five, six hours, um, which is, you know, hard to say in, in whether people find that reasonable or not reasonable. Certainly for us, it's 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 a long time, and um, and can really sort of build where the highest volume emerge in the city, see the highest number of ambulances, and so that extra time can have a real impact. The other piece I should talk about is the non-emerge piece, which um, uh, my colleagues in radiology say there's, you know, as part of COVID, there's been an increasing wait time to get those CTs, to get that diagnosis, to get the surgery, and so having this extra scanner will just allow them to get through their their community CTs a lot quicker as well, which, you know, so someone's not in eMERGE but still waiting for a CT to get a diagnosis, they will get done quicker as well as a result of having that extra scanner that can do eMERGE patients freeing up those other scanners for the community patients. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton is Dr. Greg Rutledge, Chief of Emergency Medicine at St. Joseph's Healthcare Hamilton. We are talking about raising money for a CT suite in the emergency departments. The estimated cost uh, just shy of $1.5 million. If you wish to make a donation, you can go to stjoesfoundation.ca forward slash CT suite. Uh, what kind of timeline are we looking at here? Once the funds are all raised, when can we see this suite constructed and used? So there's always, there's always a, a significant process to go through when you get to get ministry approval, etc. I think we're hoping within the with certainly within the calendar year, uh, very conservatively, that we'd be able to get it done once we have the funds and the approval um, would be our goal. Obviously, the uh, COVID uh, pandemic is uh, nowhere near being over. We do have a new variant of concern. How concerned are you at St. Joe's about Omicron? Uh, yeah, it's always concerning. You see that you see the data coming mostly from South Africa at the moment, though we're starting to see some data come through the U.S. Uh, my colleague Zane Chagla is, is on top of this so well, and so all of my data I get through him, to be honest, and he's been starting to, to publish some data on social media showing that there is a fairly large inflection point in that wave and so we haven't seen an increase in numbers in our in our ICU or our our wards yet we watch that very closely Uh, but certainly concerning as you as you see these number of mutations and we're all sort of on on the edge waiting to see how the really how the vaccine will respond to it I think that will be the big piece because we're you know in Ontario have a fairly high vaccination rate as it relates to other countries and so I'm hoping that that vaccine will continue to provide us uh, the same level of protection it has in the, in the other variants. We know that the winter months are still ahead. We know that being indoors uh, creates further opportunity for this virus to go from person to person, vaccinated or not. Uh, is there uh, a level of uh, fear or, or is there more optimism knowing that we have some best practices already in place and we can uh, you know, take care of each other? I think, I think optimism is a good way to put it. We 
we've learned a lot in 18 to 24 months, all of us, the, pub, the, you know, the public, general public, the, the uh, healthcare community. And so we know vaccines, we know social distancing, we know masking works. I know we're all tired of hearing it and want to get back to our regular lives and want to travel and want to do all those things. And, you know, healthcare, healthcare individuals are no different. Uh, but we know that that strategy has worked and the data is there to support those strategies. And so um, we do have a level of optimism that we've got the tools in place that will work. And it's just a matter of how successful these tools will be in, 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 the, in the variants. And I think the other piece, of course, that has to be said is just the global equity of, you know, these, these variants pop up because we're, you know, we're vaccinated well, but getting the whole world vaccinated, I think, is, is that piece that we really have to stay focused on. Again, if you'd like to make a donation to St. Joe's Healthcare Hamilton for their CT scanner suite, you can go online to stjoesfoundation.ca forward slash CT suite. Dr. Rutledge, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. That's Dr. Greg Rutledge, Chief of Emergency Medicine at St. Joseph's Healthcare Hamilton, as they try to raise funds to bring a CT suite into their emergency department. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Ontario's right to disconnect law has just been passed. What does it mean? Will you actually use it? And will it be enforced? A lot of the questions that we will ask our next guest, he's the Labour Minister here in Ontario, Monty McNaughton. Mr. McNaughton, good morning. Welcome to the show. Well, great to be with you, and congratulations, Hamilton. What a great day yesterday. Yes, absolutely, and we're hoping more the same on Sunday. For this right to disconnect law, what are some of the basics? How will this work? Well, certainly um, the lines have been blurred uh, between uh, work life and uh, personal time and family time for workers. We've seen this you know, really accelerate uh, during the pandemic. Uh, so we brought forward a legislation which uh, was passed uh, last week at Queen's Park, uh, the Working for Workers Act. One of the changes in there is this right to disconnect. So any employer with 25 or more employees will have to develop a right to disconnect policy to really bring transparency for their workers to tell them when they need to be uh, on the clock and off the clock. So this basic, uh, policy basically will say, listen, if you're uh, an employee of ours, um, you know, you don't have to be active on email or work-related software or phone calls uh, between, let's say, 6 p.m. and 6 a.m. the next morning. Is that basically the nuts and bolts? Yeah, exactly. It's to really bring transparency uh, for workers so they know, you know, up front. I mean, I envision uh, workers going for job interviews and asking employers, what is your right to disconnect uh, policy? Um, Every policy will be tailored to a specific uh, workplace. And I really feel this is, you know, uh, another small change that we're making that's going to make a big difference for workers. Did the pandemic, I mean, this discussion has been around for a while. Did the pandemic just heighten or push the ball down the road a little bit further that a law was needed? Absolutely. I mean, uh, we know that more than 90% of uh, people in Ontario uh, believe strongly that uh, the workplace has changed forever because of the pandemic. Ontario is the first uh, province to move uh, in the country uh, when it comes to the right to disconnect uh, policy. Um, we've seen this used uh, in other countries. I mean, I think of France and Ireland. Uh, they brought a law in, in, in 2017 just before the pandemic. Um, but certainly um, we've been bringing forward a, a number of changes here in Ontario uh, because of the changing workplace. Ontario Labour Minister Monty McNaughton is our guest here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin with you. Uh, Will there be exemptions for emergencies in this right to disconnect law? 
Absolutely. I mean, I think of those manufacturing facilities and, and those factories across the province. I come from southwestern Ontario, where we have uh, many uh, manufacturing facilities. If a line breaks down in the middle of the night, um, I've been asked many times, can the employer call uh, the manager or the person who's in charge, the supervisor of that line? Uh, yes, they can. So there is a language in the legislation that exempts um, you know, I, I guess the right to disconnect policy in cases of emergency. Employers have six months uh, after this law is passed to get um, a, a policy in place. What sort of penalties will be in place for employers who don't follow the rules? Well, I, I first want to say that those employers out there um, that already have a policy in place, um, you know, congratulations to them. We're in such a uh, competition to retain and attract uh, workers. So I think, you know, the best employers out there are doing this uh, already. But what our legislation does, it enshrines uh, in the Employment Standards Act that companies with 25 or more employees have to have a right to disconnect policy and one uh, posted uh, in the workplace. So, you know, down the road, uh, the Ministry of Labour inspectors will be going in ensuring that there is a a policy uh, in place. Uh, Again, you know, we are in such a competition for talent. We have a massive labour shortage uh, here in Ontario. 315,000 jobs are going unfilled uh, today. So the best employers out there uh, are doing this and and will do it going forward. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Ontario Labour Minister Monty McNaughton. Um, in in the push, I guess, to move this province forward and create new jobs and to fill those jobs, that shortage you just spoke about, have we turned the corner? Are we going in the right direction? Are there stumbling blocks along the way? What does Omicron add to this equation as well? Yeah, I think the greatest economic challenge we have is this, this labor shortage. I mean, we've um, created uh, more than 150,000 jobs um, more than what we had before the pandemic. So there is a labor shortage. Um, This working for workers uh, legislation really is about ensuring that workers have bigger paychecks, that we are bringing in more health and safety uh, protections, and that we're creating opportunities uh, for for workers out there to earn bigger paychecks. One of the things, apart from the right to disconnect uh, that we're bringing forward, is we're recognizing uh, foreign credentials. So 25% of immigrants that are already here uh, in Ontario are working in fields that they've studied for. Uh, That means 75% aren't. And we all know, you know, new Canadians that are uh, architects, uh, engineers that are driving taxis. Um, we are recognizing their credentials um, in this uh, legislation. So that, that'll go a long ways to addressing the labor shortage as well. Yeah, that'll have a massive impact because, uh, as you said, you know, if, if that number 75% is accurate, and I have no doubts it is, uh, you know, that's a lot of individuals who can fill those very important uh, uh, jobs in our province. Mr. McNaughton, we have to leave it there. Thank you very much for your time and enjoy the rest of your day. Great. Have a great week. You too. That's Monty McNaughton, Ontario Labour Minister, chatting with us about, uh, well, the labour situation in Ontario and more specifically, the new right to disconnect law. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. This is a really cool story out of GQ magazine. They named uh, their man of the year. One of them is Mark Hoppus, one of the members of the band Blink-182. You're just listening to one of their songs. Earlier this year... He accidentally let his cancer diagnosis slip on social media. 
He was on Instagram, and um, he basically uh, sent out, yes, hello, one cancer treatment, please. And he thought he was sending it to his close friends, but it turns out he sent it to his more than one million followers. And so the cat was out of the bag, and uh, he basically said, uh, yeah, for the past three months, I've been undergoing chemotherapy for cancer. I have cancer. It sucks. I'm scared. And at the same time, I'm blessed with incredible doctors and family and friends to get me through this. It's stage four diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, which doesn't sound good, but apparently he's doing much better these days. But it got me to thinking about, you know, major diagnoses, cancer, obviously he's one of them, and sharing the news on social media and how that helps or, or, or does it hurt? So one of the people I follow on social media is is going through this. Coulter Bouchard is the host of Coulter and Meredith on 102.1 The Edge, one of our chorus entertainment radio stations, and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Coulter. Rick, it's so good to see you. Thanks so much for the invite. Thanks for coming on. Um, you know, when I'm, when I'm read through this story in GQ magazine, the first one of the first things that come to mind is, you know, what a cool story that we may not have otherwise heard about, but because he slipped... We now know what um, Mark went through, and it's very similar to what you're going through right now. Yeah, thank God for all that Benadryl that made him so uh, woozy that he <laughs> accidentally posted this on Instagram. I will say, and the article came out, I want to say Thursday or Friday, and I remember just like kind of stopping whatever I was doing and taking the 20 or 25 minutes to read it. And I, I, I remember getting really emotional reading it because I'm going, you know, we both have lymphoma. I have Hodgkin's. He has uh, non-Hodgkin's, kind of something under that umbrella. And it was like, okay, well, the the the, the specific cancer is a little bit different, but it's it's lymphoma for both of us. We have very similar um, side effects from the chemotherapy from the cancer treatment. And as much as you never want anyone else to have to go through this, it was kind of nice to go. Here's someone else who gets it. I mean, he's much more rich and famous than I am. But it was nice to, I don't know, is, is the term kindred spirit a little hyperbolic? Yeah, no, I know where you're coming from because you, you can now relate to someone who's in the entertainment field. And yeah, he might have a little more money than you do. But at the end of the day, you're, you're going through that same kind of experience. You're also obviously in this wrestling match with this incredibly tough disease. And you've been sharing your ups and downs on social media. Why is it important for you to do so? Well, that's the thing. In my situation, and everybody's situation is different, I made the decision to go public with it because I knew how difficult lying about it would be. Um, I was diagnosed in September of 2020, so we had been in the pandemic for about six months at that point, and I had already had, um, I spent the majority of that time broadcasting from my apartment because my wife and I had a newborn, and and in the very beginning, we just thought that that was the safest way to approach this, that I wasn't coming into the office every day. So I think I could have gotten away with a lie for a little while because my listeners would have anticipated um, or, or it would have been easy to explain why I was working from home. No, it's not chemotherapy. It's just, you know, it's, it's pandemic caution, I guess. But I had a number of conversations with my wife, and I had a number of conversations with uh, friends and family, and certainly my co-host and my uh, my program director. And the decision I made was, let's just, let's be upfront about this. Let's be honest about this. It'll explain away any absences I might need, because that's another fear, right? You, you know, everybody, you take a day off, everybody automatically assumes you've got COVID-19. 
And this, it was just the easiest way, I think, to approach this. Now, it was a double-edged sword because, on the one hand, it was so great to have, you know, I got thousands of messages from people that I had never met before. And it was amazing kind of on my darkest days as I'm sitting there getting chemotherapy to have all of these um, people keeping me company. But the other side of it is there's this extreme pressure to answer every single message you receive. And um, I think I did a pretty good job getting through them. But one thing I've learned, and if you're going through this right now, or you're about to start treatment, or, or you know, you have something else in your life that you've been public about, and you have this outpouring of support, you don't need to get back to everybody. I assure you, there is no expectation from anybody that you're going to answer every single message you get. Um, so it is, it, it, it's nice to have that, but I do understand the pressure to interact with everybody. And, and you're already so tired from the treatment that just like, do it at your own pace. We have a couple more minutes with Coulter Bouchard, host of Coulter and Meredith on 102.1 The Edge. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. What's your fight ahead like? Um, so I finished frontline treatment in, I want to say like February. I had some radiation. We thought we had kind of killed it. And then about a month later, my doctor's like, oops, it looks like there's a little more. So I had a stem cell transplant in august at princess margaret hospital i believe the um, the juravinsky hospital in hamilton also offers stem cell transplants but i've had a remarkably successful uh, recovery you know most people can take up to six months to to kind of get back to everything i would say by two months i wasn't really napping anymore i was back to working from home Life had kind of resumed. Um, I celebrated three months since my transplant a couple of weeks ago, which was exciting. And I marked the occasion with a three-kilometer run. I'm also very lucky. I'm 30 years old. A lot of people receiving stem cell transplants are in their 60s and 70s, so recovery takes a little bit longer. But I'm on this uh, new drug that was approved a couple of years ago called Brentuximab. And uh, that was actually the drug that finally got me to remission before my transplant. But my doctor has me on this what's called maintenance regimen with this drug I was just referring to. So I have about a year of that to do. And the remarkable thing about this drug is that you can expect in the average person about a 30% greater chance of eventual cure. So it does have some side effects, just like any drug does, but I'm able to run. I'm looking forward to returning to the office pretty soon. I went out for dinner recently with my wife, so it's been a total game changer. And, uh, I mean, with that 30% increase in, in cure rate, I mean, I would be a fool not to take it, wouldn't I? Absolutely. Uh, Coulter, you're not only an inspiration, but uh, you are uh, an amazing individual who uh, will continue to inspire many through social media and and what you do on the air as well. Really appreciate the time. Best of luck. And uh, we'll chat down the road for sure. Rick, I need you to follow me around and stay safe. Nice stuff like that. Thank you. (laughs) Will do. Uh, Enjoy the rest of the day. Thank you. That's Coulter Bouchard, co-host of Coulter and Meredith. Check them out at 102.1 The Edge. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. It is my hope and expectation um, that um, the parties will get back to the table and get an agreement done.
three strikes here out at the old mall game. That is Commissioner Rob Manfred after Major League Baseball owners locked out the players last Thursday following the expiration of their collective bargaining agreement. It's baseball's first labor stoppage in 26 years, if you can believe it. That is a long, long time, especially for baseball, to have some labor peace. So what happens now? What will happen in the offseason? Is the season next year in jeopardy? Spring training, is it going to be scrapped? So many question marks, so many questions, and we'll have to ask our expert Julia Kreutz, writer at Yahoo Sports Canada, joins us now. Good morning, Julia. Good morning, Rick. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Thanks for coming back on. So uh, how did we get here? Yeah, I wish I was here in better circumstances. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so basically... There was a collective bargaining agreement in place between the MLB Players Association and the league and the owners, team owners. That expired on December 1st. And there is a lot that uh, players and owners are not in agreement with for a next collective bargaining agreement. Uh, And so that's why we're seeing a work stoppage because there there cannot be uh, any transactions or, or any any baseball interactions whatsoever as long as there is not a new CBA in place. So baseball is really on pause right now as these negotiations continue. There's no free agent signings. There's no trades that can happen. It's everything stopped. Everything stopped. Uh, it, the winter meetings were canceled. The Rule 5 draft, which happens in the offseason, will be postponed. It is postponed indefinitely right now. So there can absolutely be no contact between owners and players it is uh, pretty surreal a pretty surreal experience so in past labor stoppages whether it was a player strike or a uh, an owner's lockout which is the case this time around it's more often than not about money is that the case this time around yeah of course uh, i think that that whenever you think of labor disputes that is what is in place not just in baseball or in sports right but yes, 100%, that's what's in, in at stake here, basically. The players have some new ideas for when players hit free agency and, and the what is called the luxury tax threshold in MLB, which is basically you know how much can teams spend. And so basically the players want to be free agents sooner and start making more money Uh, a little earlier in their careers. And for the owners, that seems to be a non-starter. Julia Kreutz is our guest, writer at Yahoo Sports Canada. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. We're chatting about the latest Major League Baseball work stoppage, this being a lockout by the owners. And uh, as I mentioned in the past, you know, this is billionaires versus millionaires. Uh, the question is, and this might not have an answer to it just yet, but how long is this going to last? Is there any kind of gut feeling you have on when this could be resolved? I believe it should be resolved. And this is just my opinion based on you know things that I've read and people that I've spoken with. I believe that we should have a deal in place by the time spring training is supposed to start, because that would be you know, when when money starts being lost for the owners. And I think that that will really amp up the urgency of putting it together a new deal and putting players on the field and, and fans in the stands. And players start losing money when the regular season begins, correct? 
That is correct. Yes, they so, don't get paid in the off season. So those are those are really the two big pressure points. Now, when it comes to spring training, I'm not sure how much money is on the line for the owners to lose. But I'm thinking if they don't like the deal that's put in front of them, they might be willing to you know drift into the regular season to put a little more pressure on the other side. That's one tactic that they have. Yes, and, and, and that would that is definitely possible. You, you hear Commissioner Rob Manfred speak. He is very tentative about spring training. Uh, and when it comes to opening day, it's always, you know, we're, we're doing our best. We're working our hardest to make sure that opening day will happen in time and or on time. And so that is that would definitely be, uh, you know, it could be a reality. What I would say is that by that point, I believe that the owners have more or just as much to lose as the players because, as we know, that's when the real money gets made, right? Opening day, that's the, the, the Kickstarter for, for the entire season and an entire season of earnings. And so that is why I think that there will be a, a more urgency in making, in making a new deal and I think both sides will be a lot more willing to sit down and talk by that point. Let's hope so. Julia Kreutz, our guest, writer at Yahoo Sports Canada. Thanks for joining us today, and uh, we'll chat with you uh, hopefully uh, soon to talk about uh, a new deal and what that means for Major League Baseball. Can't wait. Thank you so much. Thanks, Julia. Julia Kreutz, uh, check her out, Yahoo Sports Canada, and uh, has written some uh, pretty cool articles in the past and uh, will hopefully continue to do so. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.